Good evening. Thank you everyone for coming back out this evening and thank you for everyone that uh, has participated in our service so far. As you can see, a handout's coming around, so I'll give them some time to get that out. All right, so as you can see from the top of your handout, we are going to be looking at Psalm 33 this evening. We're going to be taking a, a look at this psalm. And as you can see, uh, this psalm puts man in relation to God and answers two specific questions. First, what is man's response to God? And second, as you can see on your handout, why is God to be responded to in this way? So how we're going to look at this psalm is we're going to go just verse by verse through it, but there's a lot here within this psalm. So I want to set out uh, kind of the organization of this psalm, um, what we can find within this psalm. So as you can see from your handout, the organization, we have a response, uh, as we'll see that's a response of man, uh, response number one found in Psalm 33, 1 through 3, then we have the reasons for that response in Psalm 33, 4 through 19, and then a second response in Psalm 33, 20 through 22. So before we look at this psalm, I'd like to ask you to reflect upon your life. I want you to think about what your relationship like is like with God. How do you respond to him in your daily life? Is he the one you turn to in the tough times? when your relationships with others aren't going too well, when your finances are not good, you're struggling with sin, or your health is going downhill? Or do you only turn to him in the times when, when the times or when your life is going well? Do you go, do you go throughout your day not acknowledging God at all? Is God a part of your day every hour and every minute? Think about these things as we turn uh, to Psalm 33. So let's look at the first response. Roman numeral number one. Response number one, worship God, found in Psalm 33, one through three. And what does this look like? Letter A, worship of God is to be done by his people. This is found in Psalm 33, one, which says, shout for, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. So the righteous, the upright, those are those that are seeking to follow the commandments of God. Those are not perfect people. They're not sinless people, but those, they are those that are seeking to live a godly life. We are told in this verse that they are to be constantly praising God. These are people that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They are people, as we might use terms, that they believe in him. They have a saving knowledge of, or they have a saving relationship with God. Worship is to characterize their life. Letter B. Worship of God involves giving the credit to Him for what He has done in your life. Psalm 33, 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. So simply, this is thanking Him. Thanking God for what He has done. God is a personal God. He is at work within our lives. So we have much to thank Him for. Letter C. 
Worship of God involves realizing new things to give praise to Him for. Psalm 33.3 Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So singing a new song isn't just coming up with new lyrics for a song, but it is reflecting upon and evaluating your life and how God is working within it. Praising Him for fresh and new ways in which, he, in which you have realized He is working within your life. So application. As the people of God, as those who have been saved by Him and are now seeking to live a life for God, our lives are to be characterized with praise. We are to be giving God the credit for what He is doing within our lives. As I think about how we can worship God, how we can praise Him daily, I think often we think about praising God maybe here in church, in public, maybe through song or some other ways that we praise God um, here at church, through the preaching of His Word, um, as I've already said, through singing and song. Um, and certainly we are called to do that within the Scriptures. We are to have organized worship. But also, I think what we can take away from this uh, first response is that praising is not only outward, but it's also inward. It is an inward action in which we seek to praise God all throughout our day. Praise can and should be, con should be a constant thing in which we praise God within our life, through our actions, through our words, even through our thoughts. For example, if it be praying silently to Him, thanking Him for a way in which you have noticed Him working. Another example, maybe you just mention Him within a conversation, telling someone about how God is working within your life. Or maybe it is through when someone gives you credit or praises you for something you have done, maybe you give the praise to God. So our first response that we see from Psalm 33 is one of worshiping God. We need to turn to God in praise. So we turn now uh, to the big section that we find in Psalm 33, which is answering why. Why praise God? Why give Him such honor and glory? Why worship Him with every moment of the day? Does He even deserve such praise? Psalm 33, 4-19 relates to the reader's why. And after reading and hearing such reasons, one cannot walk away not praising God. So look with me at Roman numeral 2. Why is God to be responded to in such a way? And this comes from Psalm 33, 4 through 19, and we'll see that there is four reasons. Four reasons why God should be responded to in praise. Reason number one, letter A. The first reason is that all the ways of the Lord are holy. Psalm 33, 4 through 5 is where this is found from. So number one, the Lord's words are right. Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. So this is opposed to what is evil or what is wicked. There is no sin within God's words. As I think about this, I get a fuller picture thinking about and reflecting on myself and how amazing it is that in God's speech and what he speaks, he does not sin at all. If I think about myself, too often I lie, I speak out of anger, I insult, I gossip, I speak out of, out of annoyance, all my words are not right. Often they are corrupted by evil. But God is not like this. We see that the psalmist leaves no room for evil to be within the, his words. His speech is not mostly good. What he says is right. He never sins with his mouth. 
Number two, how we see that the Lord is holy. Number two, the Lord's deeds are consistent. Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. So God, he doesn't act out of character. What he says he will do, he does. Again, I think of myself in contrast with God too often. I slip up too often. I do not keep my guard up against sin, but God constantly does. What he does is good. What he does is right. Three, the Lord desires proper judgment. Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So we see that God desires and he wants what is right to be done in all situations. And four, the Lord shows his kindness to the whole world. Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And we might ask how? How does God show his kindness to the whole world? We could answer that by saying God's created all things. He has allowed us and all humans to be able to breathe and to be able to live. So our first reason, the first reason we see that our response should be a praise to God or worshiping God is that the ways of the Lord, all the ways of the Lord are holy. The second reason, B, the second reason is that the word of the Lord is powerful. And this is found within Psalm 33, 6 through 9. One, the word of the Lord is powerful in that by it he created all things. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So just by speaking, God created the whole world. All that we see in nature was created by God's word. Now look with me at uh, letter B, an illustration from the scriptures. I want to look at Genesis 1. It's very familiar to many of you. I'm sure you have uh, read it many times, um, have heard it uh, taught on many times, but I want to look at it as I believe that the writer expresses very clearly God's speech, God's words creating all things. So I'm going to read through these verses pretty quickly, but pay attention to how we see God's word creating. So Genesis 1.3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1.6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Genesis 1.9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Genesis 1.11, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. Genesis 1, 15 through 14 through 15, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Genesis 1, 20, And God said, let, there, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Genesis 1.24 And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So we see that God spoke, and it was created. This shows the power of God's words. Second, the word of the Lord is powerful in that he controls the waters by it. Psalm 33, 7, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts his depths in storehouses. 
So certainly we have seen this already in the creation uh, verses in that God can control the waters. But if you just think about the scriptures in general, we think of illustrations of uh, God sending the flood on the earth in the time of Noah. We think of, as we'll look at a little later on, um, uh, when God spread or divided the waters of the Red Sea for Moses, or even as he uh, divided the waters of the Jordan River as the children of Israel were led by Joshua. And even we think of Jesus calming the storm. So interestingly, uh, back in ancient times, we see this from different readings, even in the scriptures, the waters were a thing to be feared. They were something that uh, often people back in biblical times looked at as uh, they were a thing of chaos, they were a thing that could not be controlled. So to have a God that can control the waters would be, would be a great thing. Now God is the one to be feared. So we see this in the next verse. Three, man should respond in fear to God because his words are powerful. Psalm 33, 8 through 9, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So God deserves the fear and the awe of all mankind. But also, all mankind should respond to him in fear and awe because they can see visibly his creation, what he has created with his words. This fear goes beyond an afraid type of fear, and as we see often in the scriptures, this fear is a reverent obedience to God. Here the psalmist repeats what he said before about the word of God, but in a shorter and more parallel form. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So we see that God created out of nothing all things. He created out of nothing the world in which we live by his words. And everything he has created stands established. C, so we get our third reason why we should worship God. So we've seen first that the ways of the Lord are holy, and secondly, that the words of God are powerful. And now we come to our third reason. The third reason is that the will, will of the Lord rules. And this comes from Psalm 33, 10 through, 10 through 12. Number one, the Lord's plan is accomplished over the people's plans. Psalm 33:10. the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So what this verse is saying is simply that man may plan something or see it fit to do something, but if God chooses, that plan can be diminished, diminished just like that. So what man plans, God can cause not to happen. What man plans, God can go against and oppose. So from this verse, we should not get the picture that God's trying to cause chaos or that he's trying to uh, make man's plans fail for the fun of it. But we need to remember that God has the best in mind for all peoples. He has the bigger picture. He is at work, so he is not seeking to cause chaos in doing this. Second, the Lord's plan does not change. It cannot be thwarted. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So between verses 10 and 11, we see a contrast in that man plans, and his plans are not for sure to happen. We see that they can easily not happen by God's control. But we see what God plans now in verse 11 will surely happen. It cannot be thwarted. 
How often do we make plans acting as if they cannot be thwarted or changed when really only God, His plans are the ones that are for sure and definite? Three, the people of God are in a, pla- in a good place in that they align with the will of God. Psalm thirty-three, twelve: Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. So God has chosen them and called them into his plan to live according to it. They are on the side and in relationship to the one whose plans and whose decisions definitely happen. No one else can plan in such a way. Look with me at number four, the illustration of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is a man in the scriptures um, who is not mentioned too many times, but his story is an interesting one in looking um, and I believe it's a clear example of this point that we're looking at of God's will ruling. I think it's a very clear example of God working with Ahithophel. So look with me at letter A. Ahithophel comes um, into the story of a very a common man that we know or familiar story of David. So I want to look at the background on David and his son Solomon, and that's where this man Ahithophel comes in. So number one, David had a son named Absalom. Absalom set forth a plan in which he would take the kingdom from his father's hands. Number three, it goes so far as David has to flee from his home, Jerusalem, with all those who have stayed loyal to him. This is where the man Ahithophel comes into play within the scriptures. So what I want to look at simply with this illustration is this man Ahithophel, he sets forth a plan as we'll see, and we see how God's plan, in a sense, um, comes into effect over Ahithophel's plan or counsel. So letter B, Ahithophel is on the side of Absalom, 2 Samuel 15, 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So we may ask, why does this matter? Ahithophel was David's advisor, 2 Samuel 15, 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Number two, Ahithophel's counsel was a reliable and sure counsel. 2 Samuel 16.23 Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So before we move on, simply we see that this man Ahithophel, he used to be, if we want to say it, David's side. He was David's counselor, his advisor. Um, He would probably help David in his plans for his kingdom, if it be either battle or just in general his rule. And we see now he switches uh, sides onto Absalom's side. So that sets up the background, the context for what we're going to look at uh, with this illustration. So letter C. David prays that the Lord would work against Ahithophel. 2 Samuel 15, 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Letter D. David puts forth a plan against Ahithophel. So we see David working against his old counselor in 2 Samuel 15, 32 through 34. It says, While David was coming to the summit, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, 
you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. E. Hushai carries out David's plan and joins Absalom's side. This comes from 2 Samuel 16, 15 through 19, and I'm not going to read that just for sake of time, but simply um, as we move in now to, I'd say, the meat of what we're going to look at in this illustration, we see David's kind of setting forth a plan. He's prayed to God that God would defeat the council of Ahithophel, and then now we see David's actually putting into action his plan, and he's using this man Hushai to, in a sense, uh, pretend like he's on Absalom's side, and we will see how God uses that. So letter F, Absalom looks for counsel from Ahithophel, and then Hushai. So number one, we receive the plans of Ahithophel. 2 Samuel 17, 1-4. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So we see that, and as we look at it, Ahithophel's plan seems pretty good. All right, if we're on the side of Absalom, we see it's a pretty good plan in that it will be quick and it will even keep uh, some people to be reliable to Absalom. And Absalom looks at this and he thinks it's a good plan as well. Well, then we get the plan of Hushai. 2 Samuel 17, 5 through 13. It says, Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for, for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him... And all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. And we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found. Number three, Absalom goes with Hushai's plan. Second Samuel seventeen fourteen. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And then we get the reason why, why he goes with it. Number four, Absalom goes with Hushai's plan because God decided to defeat the council of Ahithophel. 2 Samuel 17, 14, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, 
The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Letter G. We see the plan of God, his working, and what he sees fit to happen surely takes place even over a man whose counsel was good. We see as the story continues that David does, does end up defeating Absalom. His story gives, gives the credit to God, as we see often within the stories of David. So that illustration simply uh, illustrates our point that the will of God, his plans, his decisions, they rule. They're over man's plans. As we see Ahithophel, he gave some pretty good counsel, but we see that God worked it out that his plans were not chosen and Hushai's were instead. So we're given three, we've been given three reasons. We're going to look at our fourth, but the first one, it was the ways of the Lord are holy. The second, the words of the Lord are powerful. And the third, the will of God rules. The fourth reason, letter D. The fourth reason is that the watch of the Lord is over all. Psalm 33, 13 through 19. Number one, the Lord sees all things. Psalm 33, 13 through 14 says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So simply, the Lord knows what is going on at all times. He's aware of all people and all events taking place. Number two, the Lord understands the ways of all people. Psalm 33, 15, He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So not only does God see and know what's going on, but he's, he knows what's in man's heart. He understands why they do what they do. He has made you and your being. He knows your desires and motives, your values and your passions. He knows your heart. Three, the Lord ultimately brings deliverance. Psalm 33, 16 through 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. So ultimately, it's not worldly things that rescue us or bring us deliverance. These are things we would think could bring great victory, but as we will see soon, there is something that trumps them. How often, as I think about our lives, do we look to our resources, ourselves, others, to help us? Not that that's a bad thing, but there's something that, as I've said, trumps that, that we should look to first. The next verse gives us what actually brings deliverance, salvation, and protection ultimately. Number four, for the people of God, God especially exercises oversight in protecting them. Psalm 33, 18 through 19, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So next, I'd like to look at an illustration from, again, a very familiar story, um, more familiar than I'd say of Ahithophel. It's from Exodus chapter 14. I believe that uh, this act of God, his act of oversight of, over the people of Israel in Exodus 14 will give us a very clear example or picture of uh, this point. So we see even that um, in this illustration, in, in this example, we're going to see God contra contrasted with an army, with horsemen, and with chariots. 
So if you do not know, Exodus 14 is the story of God uh, dividing the, uh, the Red Sea for the people of Israel. So letter A, background in Exodus for, on Exodus or in Exodus 14, 1 through 9. So just a summarization of it. God delivers the people of Israel in that Pharaoh allows them to leave, but then he changes his mind and decides to pursue them with his chariots and army. Letter B, the Israelites are fearful and believe they will be defeated. Exodus 14, 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Letter C, Moses reminds and tells them that the Lord will work. Exodus 14, 13 through 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Letter D, the Lord brings deliverance in dividing the sea. So now we're really getting to uh, the salvation of the Lord. Exodus 14, 15 through 22, the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of, the, angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So before we move to uh, the next point, we see the salvation, the deliverance of God. We see him spreading the Red Sea for the people of Israel. And now, as we move into um, the next portion of this text, we see it fully in contrast to what Psalm 33 mentioned. It mentioned a great army, warriors, a horse, chariots. We see in Exodus 14, God in contrast to those things. Letter E, the Lord brings deliverance to Israel by defeating the Egyptians. Again, look carefully um, and see between uh, God in contrast with the Egyptians. Exodus 14, 23 through 29. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the mid, into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Stretch out your hand over the sea, let that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So we see what the Israelites back in the earlier portions of Exodus 14, what they were scared of. Um, the chariots, they hear there's a great army coming of, of the Egyptians. We see they're scared of those things. We see that God ultimately destroyed them. All right, he killed the Egyptians. We see he threw them into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels. And he ultimately put the water over the chariots and the horsemen to destroy them. And finishing off Exodus 14, letter F. The Lord delivered and protected his people. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So in light of these reasons, so we've looked at the bigger portion of Psalm 33. In light of these reasons, we see the ways of the Lord are holy. All right, he's perfect. He's sinless. We see that the word of the Lord is powerful. The will of the Lord rules. And now we've seen that the watch of the Lord is over all. We're going to turn to our second response in closing. And this is the last part of our, our passage. So response number two. Rely on God. Psalm 33, 20 through 22. What does this look like? Letter A. Realize that God will work. Psalm 33:20. it says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So in every situation, if we think about situations in life, remember that God is over it. As we saw, his ways are holy. So we know that God will ultimately work by not sinning. He is powerful, as we saw through his words. He is in control, as we've seen by his will ruling. And we've seen that ultimately deliverance comes from him. So look to the Lord in every situation. We are to have a confident expectation that God will work, certainly in his timing, but he will work in whatever we are going through. I want us to think about hardships that we're going through in life, as I kind of mentioned in the beginning. What do you look to? Do you turn to God in these hardships? Do you try to solve them by your own might? Do you look to others? Do you remember that God is still there and he is at work? Letter B, find your joy in God because of your relationship with him. Psalm 33, 21, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So I ask you, what brings joy to your life? Is it situations? Is it people? Ultimately, those things will not be able to bring you constant joy. They will fail, but the one who can bring constant joy is God. Realizing what he has done for you, reflecting over his grace, his mercy within your life, remembering how he has worked. And letter C, pray that, pray that God will continue to show his love. Psalm 33, 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. 
So in a tough time, in a hardship, in a time where you feel like nothing is going well, you do not know what the next day holds, you seem not to be able to get out of this rut of life, pray to God. So in conclusion, to go over, again, the organization of this um, or the format of this psalm, response number one, worship God, from Psalm 33, 1 through 3. The reasons, we've looked at four reasons, the ways of God are holy, the words of God are powerful, the will of God rules, and the watch of God is over all. And then our response, the second response, rely upon God. So from Psalm 33, what should be taken away? Our lives as followers of Christ Jesus are to be characterized with a worship, but also as we've seen here at the end of Psalm 33, a reliance upon God. We do not just do this aimlessly or for no reason, but we, as we've seen from Psalm 33, the reasons that we have to do so are many and they are excellent. We find four here in, psalm, in this psalm. God's ways are holy, God's words are powerful, the will of God rules, and his watch is over all. I want to challenge you from this psalm to think about your daily life at home, at work, with family members, with friends, even here at church. Think about how you can grow in worshiping God. Think about how you can grow, about, grow in relying upon him in all aspects of your life. And also reflect upon the reasons that we should respond to him in such a way. Let us pray together. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Lord, we thank you for the whole book of Psalms. Lord, we thank you for the many Psalms uh, that have been written. And God, we thank you for this one in specific. Lord, we thank you for the way in which it teaches us how we should be interacting with you in our everyday life. Lord, may we worship you. May praise characterize our lives. But Lord, also may we rely upon you, looking to you in hardships. Lord, even when things are going good, may we look to you in every situation and pray to you for your help. God, we thank you for the, who you are, for being a great God. Lord, you are so good to us, and Lord, we thank you for the many reasons. We've looked at only four here this evening, but Lord, there are so many reasons to worship you and to rely upon you. And God, I pray that those things would characterize our life. I pray, Lord, that we would be an example to others. And Lord, may you help us all to live for you. Lord, may we live lives that are pleasing to you and worthy of the gospel that we have been called to. And in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.